Welcome back to another edition of the Fried Egg Podcast. Today's episode is brought to you by our friends over at B. Dratty. The 2020 U.S. Open is just around the corner, and Billy Dratty over at B. Dratty has a lot of history at Wingfoot, which is why he thought it would only make sense to honor the course in its own history hosting the U.S. Open with a limited edition Heritage logo. Available for a limited time on some of our favorite styles like the Liam Polo, the Russell Quarter Zip, and the Willie Crew Neck, you can pick up your piece of history today exclusively at bdratty.com. Today, I am joined by Wingfoot Golf Club's historian, Neil Regan. Beyond an infinite knowledge of the happenings at Wingfoot over the years, Neil was instrumental in the restoration of the golf course, which will be on display at this year's U.S. Open. A quick note before we get to Neil, we have a couple of new videos worth checking out over on our YouTube page. The most recent is a deep dive into the greens at Wingfoot West. Uh, this is narrated by consulting architect Gil Hans and 2006 U.S. Open champion Jeff Ogilvy. Uh, this footage of Wingfoot was probably the best drone footage that I have ever captured. It was a idyllic fall uh, morning and afternoon when I shot it, and uh, the context that Jeff and Gil add to the footage is is tremendous. It's it's a video I'm very proud of. The other video is a new thing that we're trying out. Um, it is somewhat of a hybrid between one of these podcasts and a video. It's a new series we're going to call Digging Into Design. It features an interview on a golf course. So the first episode is with Andy Staples, who is the consulting architect at Olympia Fields North Course uh, and Olympia Fields in general. So that's the topic that it's on. And it's a 20-minute interview, much like you'd enjoy on a podcast. But what we did was we laid over drone footage and historic visuals to the conversation to add context. So while you're listening, you can also see what we're talking about. So we're hoping to do more and more of these and make this a regular series. To never miss one of these, subscribe to our YouTube page, the Fried Egg YouTube page. And without further ado, here is our conversation with Neil Regan. I miss a green, for example. I'm already upset. When I find my ball in the bunker, I'm really upset. And when I find my ball in a fried egg. Fried egg. The dreaded fried egg. Fried egg. Fried egg. Fried egg. Fried egg. Fried egg lie. I'm about ready to run off the golf course. How did you get the job as the historian at Wingfoot? I don't know if job is the right word. Yeah. Uh, it's not like I it's a job. Yeah. If, if anything, it's a negative paying job. Um, but uh, take your know, time away. More than that, actually, uh, a lot of this stuff, uh, you know, costs money. You know, uh, when you collect things, and and the club has been fantastic in recent years about that. But there was a period where where a lot a lot of the, our recent acquisitions were just acquired by various members out of our own pocket. But in recent years, the club has really, really come on board. And now they support us like you wouldn't believe. It's just fantastic what they're doing, supporting our history. But I got involved with the history. Doug Smith was our historian. And if you know anything about Doug Smith, he, he wrote the history book that you may have seen, but he was a, a great man, a hero. And um, 
you know, you had to respect him. And he, he spent the last 35 years of his life dedicated to the history of winged foot. Uh, and I love telling, telling it this way. Um, he was a great man. He, in World War II, he signed up uh, as a young man to go to Germany right at the start of the war. And he spent his entire the entire war years. He broke his back, got sent home, basically broke out of the hospital, went back and ended up a lieutenant, infantry lieutenant in Germany in the worst fighting of the war. He saw everything you could see. He fought against the uh, SS. His unit broke one of the uh, toughest units of the SS in the late summer of 44. He had seen it all. And when he came back, when he retired 25 years later, he um, he devoted his life another 25, 30 years to Wingfoot's history. And people would ask him, uh, Doug, you've seen everything. You saw the worst the war could offer. Uh, how can you be so into such a trivial thing as golf history? And he had a phrase, he would say this. He would say, um, you know, we fought, we didn't fight for freedom. We fought for free people. We fought for the right of free people to do whatever it is that free people want to do. One of the things they want to do is play golf. It's a great game and I love it. I like telling the histories of what golfers do because that's what free people do with their freedom. What, what, uh, what attracts you to golf history? It's the same sort of thing. I've always been into history. I was a classics major in college, Latin and Greek and ancient Roman history, and ancient Greek history, and basically every other history that I can read. I love reading it. And, you know, once again, once you, you spend a lot of time on what seems like a trivial pursuit, golf history, uh, but you realize if, if it doesn't matter what little people do, you know, as Doug Smith said, the small histories keep us free. If, if it doesn't matter what, what, who won the club championship, then nothing else matters in a way, if you know what I mean? It's, um, if, 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 if life is worth living, then it's like, then it's worth living for a round of golf. So you've been doing this for a while, obviously, and you've been a history buff for a long time. What's your favorite uh, piece of Wingfoot trivia or fact that you've come across that you like to tell people? Well, I don't think anything is trivial at Wingfoot. Sorry. Okay. <laughs> Sorry. Okay. I, I guess they can't see me smiling. Um, I don't know. Well, uh, there's so many great little stories that come in and out. Um you know, my my passion is the golf course itself. So when you ask me that sort of question, I tend to float towards answering something about the golf course itself, the greens especially. Uh, and the club is just – it's the people there. Um, I guess I'm straying away from the answer to the trivia question because, once again, I, I seriously don't know if there's anything trivial about it. doesn't have to be a trivia question. Just favorite little nugget. About Wingfoot? Yeah. Well, I, I find myself, I'm also a big baseball fan, so I find myself telling the story of Babe Ruth at Wingfoot and Bobby Jones uh, all the time and of Mickey Mantle at Wingfoot. And, you know, those are two great stories, and everybody loves them still because Babe Ruth is still the biggest, you know, most famous athlete in American history, and Mickey Mantle in New York is still the man. You know, so those two stories, people never get tired of hearing. I never get tired of telling them. What are they? Oh, well, where do you start? The, the, you want to hear the whole Babe Ruth story? It's yeah. just a fantastic story. 
We got time. That's what we've got all the time in the world here. Okay, you ready for this? This is a little bit of a long story. Here's 1929 U.S. Open at Wingfoot. The 1926, seven, and eight Yankees were the greatest team in the history of baseball. Babe Ruth, Lou Gehrig, and uh, they're, I think they had seven or eight Hall of Famers on their team. They were unbeatable. 1929 starts. Uh, they're going to go ahead for forever. Ruth's wife dies in a tragic fire in January. Uh, meanwhile, Connie Mack has put together his last great baseball team. The athletics, as it turned out, to won three pennants in a row, 29, 30, and 31. But nobody knew that was coming. So Babe Ruth's kind of down because his wife had died. He gets remarried. He plays. He plays the best baseball, but he kind of doesn't play full Ruthian. And then he disappears. He goes AWOL. And the report is that he's sick. And so the newspapers are tracking him. He basically misses the first three weeks of June or the last week in May, the first week of June, two weeks in June. And um, newspapers are tracking him and doctors are reporting that he needs rest and he needs relaxation. But in fact, he is playing a lot of golf including a lot of golf at Wingfoot. And he shouldn't be doing that, but that's his bad route. So I have him playing at Wingfoot a lot, including in practice rounds uh, at the same time as Bobby Jones. And uh, at, at one point, he's playing a practice round. He's playing with Bobby Jones. He's playing with Johnny Farrow. Uh, and he shouts across, and Mike Brady and, um, and Joe Kirkwood, I think. And he shouts across the fairway to Bobby Jones. Come on, I'll take all four of you. He's on I'll beat you. I'll beat all four of you. And so he was that sort of guy. So what happened was this. The Open started on the Thursday. One of our founding members was a man named John Kieran. John Kieran was a sports writer, a good friend of Babe Ruth and Lou Gehrig and many others. He started the New York Times Sports and the Times columns that ended up being Arthur Daly and Red Smith and Dave Anderson and probably the most famous sports column in America. And he received a call from Babe on Monday night saying, Babe, I'm going to... Uh, John, I'm going to play golf at Wingfoot tomorrow. You want to join me? John Karen says, well, babe, you know, you've been sick. You only just returned to baseball. The weather's been hot. You're, you got to get your strength back. You shouldn't be playing golf. And Ruth says to him, mind your effing business. I'm going to play golf. You want to meet me at Wingfoot? And Karen says, well, I'm not a member. He says, I'm just going to, you know, but I'm sure I'll meet you. What time? And Ruth says 10 a.m. So Karen writes, he says, I show up at 10 a.m. What do I see? I see babe coming up the 18th fairway. And I say to him when he gets on the green, babe, I thought you said 10 a.m. And he says to me, I, I know I said that. I just wanted to be get 18 holes in and get warmed up so I can kick your butt. So they go out and play again. Then they have lunch. And now Ruth has played 36. The other guys have played 18. And Ruth says, come on, we're going out and playing more. And the other guys say, the, one of the other four, part of the four ball was H.B. Uh, H. Martin, the uh, golf historian. They say, babe, you can't do this. You already played 36. You got an important series coming up with the athletics who so are starting to build a big lead on you. So babe says, I'm going to go out and play play anyway. So he does. And one report says he played 54. The other says 46. Uh, the newspaper had a, one of those sports cartoons of the babe swatting the ball away, saying the last time he got sick, he, uh, he played 46 holes at Wingfoot on a hot, steamy day. So the way John Keard finished the story goes, uh, I was worried about babe hot weather, coming off his illness, Yankees in a pennant race. I shouldn't have worried because this is Babe Ruth after all. The day after that, all day at Wingfoot, he played a doubleheader against the uh, Senators, went five for nine with a home run. And then two days later, they had the day off. He played, He walked around at Wingfoot inside the ropes with Bobby Jones. We have a great picture of him there that day with a cigar on the 19th with Bobby Jones swinging and Ruth 
smoking a cigar right behind him. And he walked around with Bobby Jones. And then the next day, when Jones and Espinosa uh, tied, uh, Ruth played against the Athletics uh, in Philadelphia against Lefty Grove, the greatest pitcher, perhaps, of his era and, and a candidate for of all time. And sure enough, he hit two homers, one off Lefty Grove. So the newspaper headline says, uh, Jones Espinosa tie, playoff, uh, Ruth hits two homers, beats A's. And Kieran goes, you know, this is Babe Ruth. How you should have known, you know. It kind of reminds me a little bit of the Michael Jordan stories of the golf before big games and, you know, playing 54 holes and then dropping 50 points on on Craig Elo. Like, you know, there's a it's it's interesting how certain athletes have that uh, remarkable quality of never being tired and being so competitive that it never gets to them. Exactly. They're they they're in a different world than the rest of us, I think. So I, I love telling that story. It's a great story. Uh, what's, what's the Vicky Vanna one? Well, this is also even better in a way. Um, the 15th hole at Wingfoot, I don't know if you remember. I'm sure you do. It's a great part for uh, you hit down about 290 yards off the tee is a brook. And then the fairway, the ground slopes up and the fairway picks up again another 30 yards later. And you reach the green at about 420 from the boot tees, maybe 390 when Mickey was playing this particular day. Just left of the green is a house with a fence in front of every member knows it. Uh, Fred Corcoran lived in it for many years. Fred Corcoran was a member at Wingfoot. He was one of the men who invented the, uh, the business of being sports agency. He was a go-getter. So he was at the 1929 Open as a teenager scoring, walking with Bobby Jones. He was one of the founders of the PGA Tour, the LPGA Tour. He ran the PGA Tour for a while. His clients who he put in all the magazines were Ben Hogan, Sam Snead, Stan Musial, Ted Williams, Bing Crosby. So he was the biggest sports agent, and he was an Irish man from Boston who could just tell stories all day long. So every single member knew Fred Corcoran's yard right next to the 15th green, and he had an open door there. And a lot of rounds never finished because Fred would just invite you in when you're on the 15th hole and a lot of rounds never finished. They would just sit and drink and tell stories. So Mickey Mantle and Whitey Ford were best buddies. One of our members, Donnie Scanlon, who passed away a couple of years ago, his brother George uh, in 1951 had been in the army and by coincidence had been Whitey Ford's bunkmate and they became lifelong friends. So Mickey and Whitey would come up to Wingfoot and play with George and Donnie on occasion. So Donnie was a very good golfer, club champion, at, at, I believe at Shinnecock and Westchester and Pine Valley, but never at Wingfoot. And he was a really good golfer. And he played with Mickey a lot. So the way, the story I had heard all my life was this, that Mickey Mantle had driven the ball on 15 West into Fred Corcoran's yard. And if you do a Google Earth on that, it's about 340 yards in the air. So that's the story we all, all heard and everybody would tell it. You'd get there on the 15th hole and the caddies would tell all the visitors, Mickey Mantle put it in Fred Corker, et cetera. So we all knew that story. So about 10 years ago, I was sitting talking to Donnie. I said, Donnie, okay, for the record, I need to have this story. What's, what's the whole story? What's the true story? And this is the way Donnie, Donnie said it. He goes, well, we were playing with Mickey and Whitey. Uh, Mickey really, really could hit the ball farther than anybody had ever seen a ball because he was Mickey Mantle. And this was with Persimmon and Boladas. And Mantle really could hit the ball 300 yards in the air when he got a hold of it. 
which is unheard of when you think Jack Nichols was crushing it at 280. Uh, and he said on that particular day, uh, Mantle was hitting the ball farther than he'd ever seen. And on that particular hole, yes, he did. He hit it over the brook and well up into the fairway. Donnie said he had never seen a ball anywhere near that. And this is Donnie Scanlon talking. So he says, we had never seen a, a ball land there anywhere near there. But by the time we got back to the clubhouse, that ball was in Fred Corcoran's yard. <laughs> and for 50 years, 50 years, that was the story. That's generally probably a pretty good piece, like a pretty good standard for stories in general, how, how the ball will always move forward uh, as the years oh, or oh, as time goes on. As time goes on. And one of the beauties for the, uh, for the archives is uh, Donnie has gave me the scorecard of that day it was a couple weeks before the 59 us open the course was in incredibly difficult shape and donnie had the little round of the day i think he was 78 uh, and mickey did birdie that hole Mantle shot about a 92 but he had a big fat three circle on the, on the 15th hole I, he so. should with that drive getting it up there do you, you think anybody's gonna try and uh drive it over the brook this year we were talking about that it is possible during the uh the U.S. Uh, the Met Open a few years ago. We saw a couple of the kids try it, or maybe it was a four ball. I forget. Uh, it can be done, but we ask the pros when they come in, and they say, "What's the point?" Yeah. Should you happen to get up there, if you're at the bottom of the hill, you have a, a wedge or a nine iron for those guys. And if you happen to get across up the hill, you have one of those quarter wedges, you know, sixty yards or something like that. Uh, and who wants to, and you're, you're coming over a steep bunker unless you happen to be perfectly situated in the right spot in the fairway. So who wants to hit a 60 yard flop shot over a bunker when you can hit a full wedge, you know, same shot and be much more likely to have having the possibility of having, you know, you want to be much easier shot to hit a four iron or three iron to the bottom of the hill than it is to crush a driver 340. Yeah. Yeah. That's, uh, I didn't think it was possible to carry it on uh, four, the creek on 14 in the Olympia Fields, and I saw Bryson do it in it, like that little Wednesday yeah. match. It was unbelievable, but it, that that's what made me think of that. So A.W. A. Tillinghast, legendary architect, one of the five architects in the Hall of Fame, and probably the most revered championship golf architect, uh, and especially in terms of longevity of his championship golf courses. When he built Wingfoot, where exactly was he in his career? You know, if you, if you could maybe put some notable courses before and after where it fell in there. Uh, he was peak at that. Right in 23, he was peaking, uh, like an athlete peaks. Um, he, he was a prolific writer. He had written from, I think the first article that's been discovered that he wrote might have been 1898. It's that long ago that he started writing. He wrote up until his death in 1943, was it? Um, he wrote anonymously. He wrote daily newspaper columns for the newspapers. He was the editor of Golf Illustrated. He wrote books. He just wrote more than anybody. Tom Dokes is the only one who rivals him in the amount of writing that he does. And he wrote about his thoughts. And 1923 is when he was peaking because... He said around 1915, he had a revelation. He had already been building and redesigning golf courses. And American golf architecture at the time was, you know, mostly coming through McDonald and also coming through all the old, less creative uh, golf courses. 
of the 1890s and the early early 1900s. And he said he had a revelation where he decided that there were way too many bunkers, way too much artificiality, and it was much better to make the golf greens look like they were part of the land. So he had a, an ongoing argument with McDonald, Senior McDonald, for the rest of their lives uh, about that because McDonald was a well, you know what style he was. You could definitely recognize a McDonald green wherever it is. Um, and it's not that they're not tied into the land, but they're definitely, you know, it's different than the land around them for the most part. And Tillinghast wanted to make his, uh, his golf courses look like they should be on the land. And he wrote about it, that the method of doing that, one of his methods was, when he was blending slopes. He was adamant about, any feature on the golf course, say a, a sand trap or a green, shouldn't look like it was just placed there. But you should trace the contours all the way back 40, 50, 60 yards and start blending the slope of the ground all the way so that you don't just come upon a bunker and say, oh my God, here's a bunker. And if you look at Wingfoot, you see that every single bunker, these huge bunkers on the side, if you, you can trace the contours of those bunkers 50 yards back, and they dissipate, and, and it looks so natural. They look like they should have been there. And, they, and the same thing with the, the green sites, too. Even though they're risen up dramatically, they don't look like they were just placed on that ground as a dramatic plateau. They look like they rose out of the ground. Do you have a specific example that's your, you know, one of your favorites at Wingfoot of that shaping into a bunker from 40, 50 yards out? Yeah, and and uh, I certainly have several. Um, and and this is one of the things that Gil Hans was so good at during the restoration. He he knew this. He saw this. So when you stand now on the tee of 15 West, you can see the fairway. It drops down. The brook is at the bottom, and then the fairway picks up. We were just talking about it uh, with Mickey Mantle's long ball. Um, over the years, like every hole at Wingfoot and pretty much every golf hole, in America, um, they had changed from one piece. Uh, a Tillinghast uh, golf hole at Wingfoot anyway is one piece from tee to green. And they had been what I call become more like placemat golf courses uh, where if you drew the hole, you drew a tee, you drew a fairway and you drew a green and there were three separate pieces. So 15 West fairway had become narrowed and narrowed and pinched. There was 10 feet of rough between the end, the side of the fairway and the greenside bunkers. Um, there was no connection straight from the fairway to the green. And there was no connection from the tee to the fairway. And the fairway on the other side of the brook just picked up at a certain point. So when you're standing on a tee, you saw fairway, you saw rough, then you saw fairway again. Uh, and Gil realized that that wasn't supposed to be that way. So when you now stand on 15 West, it's back to the original design. There's one line. If you start from the back of the green, the left edge of the green becomes the left edge of the fairway, and it comes all the way towards the brook until it drops out of sight, picks up again immediately on the downside of the, on, on the, this side of the brook, and comes all the way back to the tee. So when you stand on the tee, the fairway, the tee merges with the fairway, the fairway merges with the green, and it's all one sculpture. It's a beautiful thing to see. Absolutely beautiful. Yeah, just because the it connects those two landforms, which are divided in a, in a way, right? 
Yes. And, and right next to it, this is one we marvel at every single time. Tillinghast didn't do this on a whole-by-whole whole basis. He did it throughout the course. So very often the connecting lines go from one hole to another or three holes. So when you stand on 14 West Green, it's a plateau and you're, you're generally speaking, you're heading forward to the 15th. But if you turn around and look back at the 13th, it's an absolute marvel how the 13th green is there about, you know, 300 plus yards away from you. The two fairways, the 14 West fairway and the 13 West fairway merge in your eye. You, you don't, you know, from memory that there's a 40 yard lower piece of ground between the two, but you don't see it. You just see the fairway. The two fairways look like one fairway and the two greens look like the end of the same fairway. And, it, and it's, a, it's an stunningly beautiful picture, especially when the sun's shining on it. And, and Gil Hans realized that. And the way you make that happen is um, it's, a, it's a choice on where you actually mow the contours of the fairway. So all we had to do to not have that was to do what we had done when you narrowed the fairways to narrow it in the wrong spot. And if you bring that fairway over, you know, say 15 yards this way, all of a sudden you lose that that line connecting to the other hole. So, you know, really, when you think about it, he was the pioneer of what modern architects would call the tie-in process. I guess. I think I wouldn't downplay anything that Donald Ross or McDonald did. They were really good. I mean, McDonald did tie in his greens sites to the ground. And Donald Ross did similar to what I mentioned about Tillinghast. He often has long viewpoints, but I've never seen anything quite like this. Maybe, maybe it's a matter of both concept and success of doing it. But uh, I think one of your drone videos shows you that exact same thing I'm talking about, two west and three west green. Mm -hmm. uh, if you stand out 180 yards from two west green at the right time of day, you think two west and three west green are the same piece of land, and they're, they're separated by 190 yards. Yeah, it's I noticed that the fronting bunker on three, it looks like it's a back... I think left bunker on two. Exactly, your your line is you, you go your your eye is brought to the entrance of two, through the back of the green of two, through that bunker right into the entrance of three, and you don't see anything but the putting surfaces and those bunker lines. You think about the time when it was built. Obviously, there weren't these detailed yardage books. There weren't wasn't Google Earth, and there wasn't range finders so that would spit you out the distance exact distance right away and you think about the advantage it would give somebody that had played the golf course before that would know that that bunker wasn't there well I'll, it's funny you mentioned that because one of the things Tillinghast did and other architects love to do this um is to deceive the eye by raising the foreground hiding a space in between so that you get foreshortened in your distance so on eight west, I do this. It's a little bit of a trick uh, I do to some people. It's a long haul. It's now 500 yard par four. When you get past the bunker in the fairway, you're now into your last 120 yards and you're trying to judge the distance. Uh, people think Wingfoot is flat ground, but it's nothing but. It's, it's mildly contoured, but it is there. So the fairway at about 60 yards short of the green actually dips down just about a solid foot and extends along to the entrance of the green and Tillinghast shaped it so perfectly that 
you don't see it. You see that last piece, say about six yards from the green, and the next thing your eye sees is the front of the green, and, and the foreshortening effect can cause you to be confused. And it's so successful before the rangefinders that sometimes I'll ask a caddy to go ahead and drop four, five, six, ten balls in that spot in the fairway. And as I'm walking with my guest up there, I say, you see those balls in the fairway? They go, what are you talking about? And it's not until you get within about 20 yards that you say, holy cow, there's like 10 golf balls there that we couldn't even see. But just because that's foreshortened effect. And architects, a lot of architects use that trick. It's a great thing. Any, a lot of artists use that trick, but it's a great thing to see in the land. I got to go back. And obviously, Tillinghast was well known. His escapades was well known as a strong personality. And McDonald, likewise, a strong personality. I... Is there anything about this uh, contention between the two of them about how golf court, was there any kind of public uh, knowledge or any disputes between the two of them? Yeah, I'm, I'm aware of several times Tillinghast writing about it, not going into detail, but he says things like, I'm, I'm quoting from memory here, but um, I have a, um, an ongoing argument with my uh, good friend, Mr. You know, C.B. McDonald or something to that effect. It, it seemed all very cordial. I don't think, I don't think they were enemies. I'm sure they weren't enemies unless the rumors were true that Charles McDonald had no friends, but I don't think that's true either. Um, he definitely didn't yeah, have they, any they were, friends at the uh, 1894 uh, amateur. What was it? Did, was that the third try for him? <laughs> I, I, it was, I think it was, it was one of the ones that he, uh, he contended successfully where he, uh, do over. Yeah, he was got, do over, do over, now I win. I think 95 was where he won, and he got the two do overs before. Yeah. Um, but, you know, Donald Ross and Tillinghast uh, were old friends going way back. Um, and one of the most touching letters, you probably have seen it, uh, Tillinghast wrote it to Ross shortly before Tillinghast died. And it's a real sentimental letter. Uh, Tillinghast had last seen Ross six or seven years before when he was doing this touring of the country. And he stopped in Pinehurst and spent a few days with Ross. And, and Ross showed him around Pinehurst number two, which was in a heavy transition period because they were, you know, modern technology, they were able to grasp the greens and everything. And so Ross had worked on it all for 30 years. And that was kind of when Pinehurst was becoming what it is now, you know, perfecting. And they spent some time there and, Ross, and Tillinghast wrote a wonderful letter saying to my old friend, Donald Ross, remember that time we spent, it's good to hear from you, you know, good to see you, et cetera. I, have you seen that letter? Uh-huh. I'll, I'll send it on to you if you want to look at Love it. Love to see that. It's a great one. I only have the text. I don't have the effects in the letter. I only have the text. But... And then he obviously had all of his relationships with the other uh, Philly schools and Wingfoot in a great area for golf. Um, and then it's got a bunch of different tilling hats right around it. Obviously right next door, you got Quaker Ridge just down the road. You got Fenway. I, I think one of the unique things, and obviously Ross probably shared this also is the variety of his designs and nothing could be more evident than those couple courses right around, you know, Winkfoot there. Talk a little bit about the variety in his designs. Well, um, they were all roughly the same time. Quaker Ridge had been there um, a few years before, uh, nine holes by a previous designer. So Tilling has first worked there. I think he only he redesigned seven holes and designed eleven new. 
And then in the 20s, did some more work on the recently purchased land. But right when he was first working at Quaker Ridge was when he was transitioning into his revelation, which he said had come in 1915, I think, in Texas. So he was just starting to develop his full-fledged theories. Uh, so they weren't fully realized at Quaker Ridge as they were seven years later at, at Wingfoot and Fenway too. Um, he wrote, for example, uh, this is this is a, the this was our guiding theme at our restoration at Wingfoot. I'll, I'll give you the quote from memory. Um, Tillinghast wrote, "If I have contributed one thing to golf course architecture, I think it's this: the notion that the approach to the green should be designed and maintained with as much care and intelligence as the green itself." And then he elaborated on that. He did. He said, "I don't mean it just should be short grass in good condition, but that the uh, shaping of it should be." reward the intelligent shot with a purpose. Um, and then I, he said in recent years, this is, he's writing this in 1929, in recent years I have devoted as much time to the approach to the green as to the putting green itself. And he called it the gateway to the green. So if you see at Wingfoot, almost every green, not almost every, but the majority of them have a bunker that's not in play off the tee and not really in play as you approach the green. They're 40, 50, 60 yards out, sometimes on a par three. And that was his gateway to the green. He treated everything past that point. And sometimes it's not a bunker, it's just the landform, as it is on 15 West. But everything past that point is part of the green. He called it the semi-green or the approach. And it's they if you take any contour on any green at Wingfoot and you follow it off into the fairway. It does, the green doesn't end at the fairway. The, the contours that you're putting on on the green continue out into the fairway. So that means that the approach shot from 30, 40, 50 yards out at Wingfoot can be treated like a putt, whether it's with a bouncing five iron or seven iron or with a putter itself. But it, it, it shapes the same way that you would play a 15-foot break on a big slope on the green itself. You can play the fairway too. And Tillinghast was proud of that. With the greens and surrounds, obviously that is Wingfoot's calling card. I think that would be the thing that everybody first jumps to mind with Wingfoot is is the greens in, in terms of the golf course. Is there any other Tillinghast work that you've come across that you would put in the same realm of the greens at Wingfoot? Uh, yeah, as a matter of fact, I, I haven't been there in 20 years, but I remember playing Baltimore for a few days, five farms, and I was flabbergasted at how good those greens are. I, I fell in love with them. I could putt there forever. Uh, and they share with Wingfoot um, this thing, this feature, every single contour at Wingfoot, every single contour at Wingfoot on the greens comes in from outside. It comes in from uh, the corners of the green, the sides of the green, and the entrance to the green. So if there's a knob on the back right corner, for example, that will come into the green for a certain distance, 15, 20, 30 feet, sometimes all the way across the green. Uh, but there's nowhere virtually on Wingfoot's greens where, where he said, okay, right here, we need to put a little break or a shelf or a ridge, which is a very common thing when people design greens. The green putting surface is unto itself. It's a separate piece of work from the land around it, even if the surrounds are well tied in. 
all the contours that you put on. You can actually read a wing foot green from 50 yards away. Because if you see the big shoulder coming in, you know that shoulder is going to kind of slowly dissipate. But that's the break. That's the dominant break on that line. So a lot of times when you when you get to a portion on the green where you're not sure whether it's going right to left or left to right, you look around you and you say, well, this this big shoulder is coming in and it's almost gone now. And this big shoulder on my other side is gone. So therefore, I'm going to use the shoulder on my left as the break. And you can actually read the greens from, from a long distance away that way. And you can... The corollary is you can make 50, 60 foot putts if you read them correctly, because they're so true on that. You know, there's no, no wavy lines, no ridges to go over. And if you miss them, you, you go one way. And if you miss them, you go the other way. You can follow. If you read that line, you can follow. Eight West, if you know the ridge, you can putt from the front right corner to the pin at 11 o'clock, and you can put it within a foot every time if you know the line. So in a way, it really rewards those that know how to read greens well absolutely absolutely because it takes a good stroke but it rewards the guy who reads the green as well as the guy who could stroke the ball straight gil hans gives you tons of credit for the restoration work uh, you know he said i think he calls you the greens whisperer is that right I never heard that before today, but now a thousand people have told me that. Thank you. <laughs> um, <laughs> so I, I'd love to hear about the work that you did to get ready for that project from a historian standpoint and, and what you did to get ready to work with Gil on those green expansions. Well, the first thing was this Doug Smith back we had a fire in 1970, I think it was. Doug Smith, Ted Horton was our greenskeeper, and Doug Smith uh, was already interested in history, found uh, a, an album from opening day that basically was on its way out. It was been put in the attic, and nobody knew it was there anymore, and it was actually on the dumpster. It was gone. And they rescued it from the dumpster, and Doug more or less started collecting everything else that he could save including our opening day programs and anything you could find. That album was the starting point, without a doubt. Uh, a professional photographer, six by 10 photos that you can blow up to five feet wide because they're that high quality. Um, of most of the, not most, but uh, I think it's 18 of the holes on the opening day, 1923, at ground level, where you can see the shoelaces on the, uh, the golfers on the greens. High quality, you can see every ridge. And when... When you look at them and then you, our course was still beautiful. But when you look at those pictures and you say, whoa, what's going on here? What did we do? You know, these, as good as what we had was in 1999, this was five times better. And so that's what kind of got it going. The members started seeing these pictures and realizing that uh, it should be back that way again. Um, so we started collecting, uh, and this is when the internet was first coming in and eBay. Uh, so newspapers were dumping their old morgues so you could find old press photos through the years. So I started collecting every photo I could from in that era of Wingfoot and gathered a, enough really good ones. Um, plus with the opening day photos and everything else we could find that Doug had tracked down in the magazines and stuff. We had a real good collection of almost every hole uh, at 
extraordinary levels. And then we were blessed and lucky and intelligent. The club was that um, when our greens had shrunk, it was a one-time event mostly. The depression had caused us to cut back seriously on staff. So if our, say you have a 7,000 square foot green that kind of what we have now goes out into the corners, they were given orders, basically just mow as quick as you can. So they mowed in circles more or less. And our greens shrunk radically, but we never ever changed the contours that was underneath what was now on grass. So we had the original contours there in 95% of the cases for Gil to restore. He had to pull the grass off, massage it, uh, and work it back, you know, work the soils back in uh, on 95% of the cases. And it was amazing how good he could do that. Uh, so we're, we're, we're lucky. Most places that go through that sort of shrinkage of greens end up somewhere along the line. Somebody flattens what they, what they had lost. And we never did that. I haven't seen it. A buddy of mine always talks about like a golf club atlas uh, thread about Yale where in like 1950, a superintendent just went around flattening yes. all the, all the mounds and stuff. And at one point, so I think George Botto might have gotten him back to the property and drove around with him and asked him to tell him everything he did to the golf course. So it, it's a, it, you know, that that's a story that jumps to mind that's so related to that. I suspect you're talking about Colin. Yeah. You, yeah. So yeah, I think the words were in the interest of fairness. Yeah. Um, the that guy who ran the golf course, and I, I understand he was a good man, not not to speak ill of him, but. Um, Yes, the uh, the first hole, the second hole, we flattened the eighth hole. Um, Yale is one of the great courses of the world, without a doubt. Uh, it's its bones are as, as good as anything there is, and some people just don't understand that, and they they want flat greens. They don't want unfairness. That, that's the thing is the, the fair. That's what has caused so much of the flattening was the idea of fair. Tell us a little bit about the green expansions and what they add, because obviously some might look at some of the slopes at Wingfoot and say that's unfair, but what, what makes the green expansions at, at Wingfoot unique and how they play in is because a lot of times people will look at them and say, Hey, you can't put a pin there. Why is that green? That's true. Actually, a bunch of the uh, fronts, you can't put a pin there. And the answer to the question, why is that a green is what I mentioned before. Uh, why is that green? Um, the approaches, what we think of as fairway, are actually part of the green. So that unpinnable area, the false front, as some people call it, is actually just a transition to the next part of the green, which is the entrance, the approach. Even though it's motored fairway height, it is part of the green. So when you have a steep ridge on a green where, you know, people like on 12 West, where you're, you're either up on top or you're down below, People don't say that slope that you can't put a pin on shouldn't be there. Well, it's the same thing with if that same slope is at the entrance to the green, it's actually just a transition to the fairway approach. Um, so that's my answer to that question. Because we did have a lot of questions about that. The expansions of the greens were restored, those fronts, and a lot of balls were coming off that didn't used to come off. But in fact, they actually did used to come off. It's just that they weren't on. Um, if you know what I mean, a guy would a guy would hit hits three east now, ten yards onto the green, and if he doesn't bounce forward, he might come back down into the fairway. And he says that's not fair because I was ten feet onto the green. That never happened before, and we have to explain to him, well, 
when you hit it to that exact same spot on the planet Earth, it was fairway before. So you weren't on the thing. <laughs> Something you talked about earlier was the, the fairway width shrinking over time. And how wide were the fairways when it originally opened and how they shrunk as the, as the ball went further and players got better. They, they got narrower, correct? Yes and no. I mean, yes, that's true. But actually that was a a single event thing that happened throughout American golf. uh, The introduction of centerline irrigation systems. Okay. So when an architect designs a golf course, and if you see any course designed by Gil or Tom, uh, nowadays, you'll see weaving fairways that get wider and narrower, and et cetera. So Tilling has designed the, green, the fairways that went like that, too, as did many architects. But once you put centerline irrigation in, the throw of the water is X number of feet, and anything outside of that becomes rough. So the fairway width was determined by the throw of your water, and it became with X instead of if you stand in a fairway now, once again, at Wingfoot, the width of the fairway might be 30 yards where you're standing. And then you go up 20 yards, it might be 28 yards and it might be 35 again, as you go farther. But when you have centerline irrigation and you don't know exactly what you're doing, which a lot of people didn't quite in the fifties, your, your fairway line becomes a standard width based on the throw of the water. So in Wingfoot's case, it was about 35, reduced to 30, then to 28 before we went back. So with the different widths, when you approached the restoration, was there, what was the discussion like around where to go with it? Oh, well, see, this is one of the things Gil also realized, which was great. Um, the, 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 the evolution of our fairway widths had always been based on that centerline irrigation. So as they got narrower by choice, it was always down that same center line. When we went back with the reconstruction, we realized, okay, we're going to keep relatively narrow fairways, even though as they do kind of weave, get wider and narrower. But we have a 50-yard wide corridor to choose what that 30-yard width is. So two west is a perfect example. You take the original um, width of the fairway and you put a center line irrigation system down, and then it narrows and narrows over time. And it's a slight dog leg. Once we did the restoration, Gil had kind of an option to make, instead of the new narrower fairway width straight down what it had been my, my lifetime, he said, well, why don't we shift it over to the left half of the original fairway? So now it's more of a dog leg right, which means that it's a lot harder to cut the corner. It's not a severe dog leg, but the current fairway line is the left half of the original fairway line as opposed to the dead center of the original fairway line. That's an interesting thing that I've never thought of really is the idea because all fairways were so massively wide when they were constructed and you go to these courses and you're like, well, that probably was connected to that hole. And then you start looking at the next hole and you're like, you could connect that hole. But the, the idea of using the corridor and part of the corridor and adapting it for modern game because the other aspect of what shifting that to the left is somebody trying to cut that corner. They're coming in and the angles working against them, keeping that ball in the fairway. Like they have to hit such a good tee shot, maybe shape it even to keep that ball from running through the fairway. Yes, exactly. And, and, and it's interesting thing. Killing us did this and other architects do this too, uh, but not all. Two West is a perfect example. It's a dog like right. 
and you will hear a zillion people say, tell newcomers, uh, it's a dogleg right, you would probably want to cut this a little bit to the right side of the fairway. But in fact, there and on numerous other places at Wingfoot, it's a, if it's a dogleg right, the proper shot is a draw off the tee to the left side. And it's, it's a, you know, if you're smart enough to realize that, which a lot of golfers are, you do that. But if you're not smart enough to realize that, you think that the bend in the fairway is the way you should shape your shot. And sometimes it's the exact opposite. Yeah. Um, it's the counterintuitive nature of golf in general. You know? Exactly, yeah. <laughs> and this, you know, this whole turns right, Mr. Smith, so I want you to hit it to the left. Yeah. You know? <laughs> Um, what are, what are a few of the, the greens and holes in particular that you're looking forward to watching in September at the U S open with the expansions or restored features? Oh, I will always be most interested in watching them putt West number one. It's the most fun green in the world to putt. You can stay there forever and ever. And, ever. and I watched in 06, for a couple hours, Jose Maria Alfabo in a practice round wouldn't leave the green. He let three or four groups go through. As he said, I'm staying on the green. He was just putting every which way. The same thing I do and a lot of my friends do were just putt on that green. And he was trying every putt. He was turning his back to it. He was the group was coming along. He was saying to them, look at this, you know, and he turned his back and he put it to the back of the green and have it come down on the other side. And he was laughing and everything. And I want to see those guys again do that sort of thing, but I want to see him do it in the open which might happen because when Jose Maria was doing it, the wild putts, you couldn't really pin because we didn't have the perimeters in order to make those wild putts work. You got to be able to take a big sweep and change your direction across the fall line. So sometimes you go past the cup and return, not in a straight line on a big curve. And now that we have the restored perimeters, we can put pins where your line might be, if it's, if, if it's say you have a 20-foot putt, you might have to play it 10 feet high, kind of go five feet past the cup and do a sort of a semicircle back to the cup. And yeah, that sort of putt on one west more than anywhere else. Jeff Ogilvy in your, your video puts it great. The, your, your, the video you released today where he says, you get to one west and it's sort of like, I forget the exact words he used, he goes, but you see everything on this green. It's like two kids who had been given a, a pile of sand and some. Uh, it's like a homemade thing. He called it. I think a homemade thing. Yeah, and then he goes, and you see this, and then you've seen everything, and every other green at Wingfoot has a part of that, but One West has everything you see on, on all the greens at Wingfoot. I think I've said it on a podcast before, but there's greens that you think about. The, if you get invited to play somewhere, you think about greens and. It's immediately what comes to mind. And for Wingfoot, without a doubt, for me, it's like the first green. When you, somebody says Wingfoot West, it's like I just immediately think about the first green. And it's it's just so wildly unique. And it's unlike anything. And if somebody asked me what green I would want in my backyard, it, that that one would be there with, you know, maybe the short hole at a... At a at national hole six at national golf links would yeah, be another exactly, one that would come exactly. to mind yeah. in the same mold. There but... Yeah, there's that. That's right. You know, uh, and I, I use the analogy to great athletes in other sports. So you, you, you take the hall of fame in baseball or basketball or something and anybody in the hall of fame is great, but, but you always end up saying Ruth 
and Mano and Mays and guys like that are that much better than the rest. Um, and in basketball, you end up with, you know, Chamberlain and Michael Jordan and Bill Russell are better than the rest. So too with the Greens. National, short hole, wing foot number one, a, a few others at wing foot are just better than all the rest, as great as some of those other ones are. Yeah. yeah. What are a few of the others that you'd, you know, maybe they aren't number one, but they, they deserve special recognition. Well, uh, 15 West is just phenomenal. It's, it's also a candidate for the best green in the world. You could stay there forever. I, I think I slept there a couple of nights. I'm not sure. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> uh, we were doing this yesterday with a friend of mine. Uh, we, we were, we do this a lot. Actually. Uh, we put a pin down, it was a good pin yesterday, so we didn't have to put it down. But sometimes we put a glove down where, where the pin should be. And we stand in the same spot. We play a game. We go, okay, four putts. The rule is you have to go a different route than the other guy. And, and it's true at Wingfoot. You often can find three or four routes to the hole. But here's the beauty of it. Um, only one of them is the one that's going to go in the cup. And that'll, that will change depending on exactly the speed of the grass and exactly where your ball is. So you could move your ball five feet and the line that goes in the cup now becomes, you know, 20 foot break right to left instead of a 20 foot break left to right. And, and I would do this all the time. It's astonishing. And, and uh, my friend yesterday was going, I had never seen that before. He goes, that's unbelievable. He was talking to all his friends at dinner afterwards. He was like, I had never realized that I'd never seen that before, but we did three different putts to the same hole, from, you know, Totally different lines, and that is almost unique. Uh, I'm not—I I know many greens around the world that have features like that, but I know no collection of greens that has that as a universal principle, other than wing foot. It, it, yeah, it, it's so cool. It's the the imagination aspect of of golf and visualization really comes alive on those greens, and and I think obviously with with the technological advances and in the game, having those greens, it retains artistry for anybody that wins at, wins at Wingfoot has to have some sort of artistic flair to their game. I agree with that a hundred percent. And I think that's why I'm so excited about after the restoration. I think that was always true, but never more so true than now because the greens had shrunk already by the 30. So even in the 59, 74, 84, 06 open, that feature was always there, but it was restricted because we couldn't put the pins in some of the spots that we will be putting them this year. Uh, and the, pot, the spots that we will be putting them this year will require the man to be creative. And, and you know, different angle. We're, we're not talking, you know, playing in a foot out farther, right? We're talking playing 45 degree angle different than the other guy. With the two courses, how are how's the identity of each course? Is it different? Is it similar? Is it you know from a when they when they set out to build the two golf courses, was there an intention to make them feel and look the same or be unique in it, in their own right? One hundred percent the same. There's not a single hole on either that wouldn't fit perfectly on the other. Uh, there was no intention to distinguish most golf courses that have most clubs that have two courses do distinguish between them, even Baltusrol lower and upper, for example. Bandon, of course, identifies itself with four or with five now, I forget, uniquely distinctive courses. 
Valley Bunyan, Bold, and Cashner are vastly different. Uh, Port Rush, Valley, and, and Don Lewis are different. St. Andrews, all the courses are different from each other. Wingfoot, I think, is the only one that where the two courses are intentionally designed to be 36 holes. Any hole can be played as if it was part of the other course. There's no absolutely no stylistic difference. Has there ever been a, a composite course created? Every day. Every day members are out there doing this and that. In the, in the afternoon, it's very common for, for people to go out four holes on the east. You play, you play 11, 12, 13 on the east, and then you drop a ball on 16, 17, 18 on the west. You do that sort of thing all the time. And that's what I'm saying. It, it's not like you're going on to the easier course or the harder course. It's just that's what you want to do today. Mm-hmm. You know? it's, uh, so, yeah. How do you personally well, I, split 10 I, rounds between the two? There's a saying, you vote with your feet. Um, so I think about that a lot. A lot of people ask that question. And if you came up with an, a thoughtful answer, it would be different than actuality. I think I think it's true for most members. Uh, we play the East more than the West. <laughs> it's definitely true right now, I can tell you. Um, One beats but, you up a little uh, bit less. It def- it, uh, the East is just so fun it's a perfectly fun course and there's no doubt that the east you're talking about the difference between the east and the west cumulatively the east is way easier especially now just because uh at the end of the day it's two strokes three strokes easier um but there's no doubt at all that the back of the west is a perfect 10 that is definitely the best nine on the property without doubt um, I'm interested, changing gears a little bit away from the course, about the the club and the culture, how over the time of history, it, has that obviously, you know, it's it's a highly regarded club, has the culture evolved or is it, has there been a resounding kind of theme of the culture throughout its history? I would say, well, it's only evolved in the same way American culture has evolved. Um, it's always been about golf um and it's the friendliest club in the world uh you walk into the grill room and, and you feel like you're a member and you're treated like a member um it's evolved just the way american society has evolved uh it used to be a men's grill and now it's been mixed for 30 years um but we always you know we were had women members from day one we the lock the clubhouse greatest clubhouse one of the greatest clubhouses in golf was built with women's lockers rooms. You know, so it's not like we were a men's club at the beginning. Um, and it was always, a, it was just guys out there having fun playing golf, barbecues, golf, tell, you know, rag each other. It's funny. When I read the board minutes from the twenties, Nibs Nobles and those guys, I think I'm listening to the guys I just had lunch with, you know, it's, it's the same sort of, Rib, sticking people in the ribs, you know, old Doc Kelton thinks he can hit a ball, but he can't hit the ball and all that type of stuff, you know. Um, Mike Brady, you know, giving lessons, wishes he could grow hair as well as he could strike a wedge, <laughs> things like that, you know. Uh, it's, it's good stuff. So it's very, very fair. So I would say, no, the culture is probably, uh, if you could transplant yourself magically with a time machine, similar to the holes you put one on the other course you wouldn't know you'd change anything if you drop a guy from the 20s into the 2020s and vice versa he'd be right at home home. you uh you talked earlier about 
finding old images on eBay. I've talked to other historians who get contacted by random people who have, you know, sometimes routing plans. What's the what's the best discovery that you've come across in your time uh, doing the archival work? Oh, um, I don't know if it's the or it, it, well, most uh, whatever you know whatever jumps to mind. I'll tell you a couple. Um, Doug Smith found it. It was actually published way back in the day, but before the internet and, and, and stuff, it took a lot of work to track down the old magazines. So Doug Smith found it, and then we found a much better copy of it. 10 West, under construction. It's finished, but there's no sand in it. And every golf architect who's ever seen it just kind of sit there like a little kid. I, Tom Martsoff looked at that, and he was like jumping up and down going, oh, this is the best thing I've ever seen, you know. Guild calls it the coolest thing he's ever seen in golf. It's just the greatest golf picture, if you like golf course architecture. You know, and, and it's the reason Tilling has it's always been considered his best part three. You look at this and you go, how did he do that? How? That's just a perfect talk. Um, another great one, found this luckily six years ago, um, and it's now hanging five feet tall in our dining room. Sorry, dining room. Guild uses this for the restoration. It's 10 West from the tee a week before the U.S. Open. And there's a golfer on the tee and a golfer on the green. And it's just the most perfect picture. And we blew that up to four feet. And we had it on the tee with us. And Gil's goal was to make it look exactly if he could like that. And he succeeded. But that took a lot of work. And that's one of the reasons we respect Gil so much is that uh, he didn't just rebuild the bunkers. He went back to the tee and said, you know, that, that line's got to be a little bit this way. And that line's got to be a little bit this way. 30, 40, 50 times until we got it exactly right. So I could send you a picture where we put the two holes, the two pictures side by side. I duplicated the picture after the restoration. So I found the exact spot where it had been taken from. And uh, I cut out the golfer from 1929 and I put him on the green from 2019. And then you, you virtually can't tell the two greens apart, except that Paul Callahan's house is behind the green now. And it wasn't there back then. That's, so. uh, it, that's the cool thing with seeing the architects, you know, the great restoration architects at work is that taking a picture and just really making sure, oh, that lip tied in a little bit this way or that way, it ducked in here. Oh, I, I pulled that too much. And they're doing this with a bulldozer. It's just utterly unbelievable. And, and that's the, what I mentioned before about the lines that Gil saw that Tilling has put in. Um, it happens all over a bunker line will merge with a bunker on a hole that totally on another hole. Like you mentioned the bunker on three looks like it's the back of bunker on number two. That's probably 20 different spots on the property. So in order to make that work, Gil would have to go back to the T and make sure that it worked. And often that, you know, you shape a bunker based on the original picture and you can duplicate it. But then when you go back to the T, you say, okay, it's a duplicate of the bunker, but it doesn't quite line up with the bunker a hundred yards down like it's supposed to. And then you have to modify the slopes. And, you know, part of that was also, once again, the visual deception of depth, depth perception. If, if a fairway bunker, the next thing your eye catches is the greenside bunker 150 yards farther down, your mind is fooled until you have a laser measure, you know, uh, but your the beauty of it is just something to see. Can, can we talk about the one unoriginal green out there? 
Yeah, it, uh, my heart's not broken yet, but it's halfway there. Um, four West, uh, the most dramatic green on the front of the West. Um, drainage problems. Uh, it was filled in in 1940-ish. That whole corner, 4 West, 15 West, and 14 East have always been low-lying land with still air. Every greenskeepers had problems with it, with grass growing. Uh, I found a... Um, uh, Eric Greytock found this in the uh, maintenance archives, a as-built plan of the course in 1932. Tilling has assisted in this. Uh, the depression had hit, so we had to do some things, um, one of which was remove various bunkers. Uh, the other was install a drainage and an irrigation system. And so right there, you see them with their drainage pipes and irrigation systems right across the fourth green. There was a huge swale. The green was divided, Tilling House wrote about it, uh, folded like a paper in the middle. Uh, the back was about five feet high, the front was about three feet high, and there was a swale in between the two that went down to grade. Uh, and it was just a dramatic looking hole, and it got filled in because of the drainage issues, and then nobody in our lifetime had ever seen it because this was going back in the 40s. One of the, you mentioned before the finds, I found a picture of it when it had just been done in 1940. So that was a good discovery. So that's when we were able to place when it had been done. And we wanted to put it back, but we made a mistake. You mentioned Yale before. Um, there's one of the great holes at Yale is to be a Ritz hole, the ninth hole. And that's a hole that uh, McDonald and Rainer put on a lot of courses. It's a template hole. And as you know, it's a, um, it's a 70 yard deep green or double green designed to be played from 230 to 250 yards with a three wood to a driver, bounding it in, negotiating the front, which may or may not be putting surface, going through the deep swell four or five feet. I think Yale's might be six feet deep. I think sure. so deep. Coming out the other side. And uh, there was a resemblance to a beer Ritz in our fourth green, only that it had a swale. So it got labeled as a beer Ritz and, and various... Uh, people were scared of putting a beer ritz back because they had notions of hitting long shots and going over the back and it's out of bounds over the back. In fact, it's designed to receive a, uh, you know, it's a 400 yard hole downhill. So you're designed to receive a 150 yard shot plus or minus. Um, and the back of the swale behind the swale was, was high green and uh, it wouldn't have been an issue, but there was a misunderstanding about, about the dangers of going out of bounds, basically. Um, so it got vetoed. But now we have hopes, I, I think, because people are understanding, they're, they're thinking more and more about it and saying, yeah, why, why did we do 35 out of 36? And then when they, I remind them that we actually have a green still that's extraordinarily similar to it, nine east uh, has a big swale on it, and then you go up, but it doesn't have the back flat portion for pins. So 90s, you go through the swale and then you have the back of the green. But if you did have a putting surface behind that, it would be extraordinarily similar to four west. Mm -hmm. And people say, oh, I get it. Because when we did the restoration, this was so cool because Gil wanted to do it very much. Um, when we got vetoed and we had to take the green apart and put it back together again, we went very, very slowly on that one, taking it apart. We excavated inch by inch down till we got the swale. We put yardsticks in and took pictures, so we know exactly where the swale was. Exactly, we could put we can put it back. That's cool. We could put it in there. 
And, and my hope is one day we will, because the back of the green is original and the front of the green is very close to original. So basically all we need to do is put the swell through. And Gil, I'm sure, would be happy to do that should the, should the club ever see fit to change our minds. Hey, hopefully, you know, who knows? Yeah. I hope so. You know, the, the, the people who were against it, they're, they're really good. They were supportive of the whole program. And who knows, maybe they were right. Maybe we shouldn't put it back. Um, and I thank them all for, for the support they did for the whole process because uh, it was tough. And um, the membership supported it hugely. But anytime any questions arose, uh, it was helpful to have guys on head of the Greens Committee and the president of the club and various other people stand up firmly for doing what we were doing, sticking to the plan. So if we if they vetoed that one hole, oh, God bless them, they were they were right on the other 35. Yeah, I, and that's the thing that stands out to me. Having, you know, you go see a lot of restorations and you see where concessions are made because of various things. And out there with the Greens, you could see so many places where a membership might in another situation be like, you know what? We don't need that back left corner of X green or the back right corner here. Nope. You know, you get nothing's ever, you know, no, no pins ever going to be there. We're just going to, we're going to keep that as rough. And it's like that, all those little concessions add up over time. And there were so few, you know, the greens are so spectacular out there. Yeah. And we were lucky. I alluded to this before, how we were lucky good and smart um those things you're talking about where a guy said we shouldn't have a pin there so it ended up being long grass if that drops down the historical memory hole somebody comes along the next generation sees the long grass and says why don't we uh, just fight or mow it do it change the contours we didn't do any of that and it's because uh we were lucky of course but also i think our greens committees were have always been really really sharp they don't want to change things. So even the bunkers that we took out, you know, in the thirties are still there. You can see them. We just basically fill them in with grass. So you still see the form. So if we ever wanted to put back the bunker at the beginning of seventies fairway, it's just a matter of striffing turf and changing. The, it's there. Cavity just sitting uh, there. Yeah. Just wait. We put back together again. And, and the other way we were lucky is this, um, the course was Tilling has built the course. His foreman in charge of it was John Elliff, who had built some courses for him. He was a greenskeeper from England who came over to America and built courses. And um, he ended up staying with us. So he was our greens, uh, you know, superintendent for the twenties and thirties. So he literally had built the course and he was able at all times to say exactly, presumably exactly what Tilling has had said to him. Also, his chief foreman was a man named Harold Fergie, a local guy who was a foreman for the construction. So he was there from 22 on. When Elif retired, Fergie took over and stayed with us till 1960. So for the first 40 years of our time, we could actually go to the guy who had shaped the green before we did anything to it. And I, I don't... No, specifically, but I can only say that it had to be invaluable. To yeah. be able to do that. I mean, you could be like, I built it. <laughs> That's the yeah. ultimate defense. <laughs> I built that because this. Exactly. And then, you know, Sherwood Moore took over in the 50s, and he's in the superintendent hall of fame. He's one of the legends. And he had Lafergie as a special consultant during his time at, at Wingfoot. So 
Sherwood Moore's mandate was to modernize uh, the grass. That was when the grass revolution was happening with the irrigation systems, et cetera. And so when he was doing that, he had Lafergie as an assistant, as a consultant. And uh, so he had to be talking to him saying, and I'm sure Lafergie was saying, well, don't, don't do that. <laughs> you know, if, if you ever had the notion of blowing up a bunker or a green site or something, you know? Yeah. So that's what, what best thing that can happen for most clubs just not to do anything. You know, I got to say though, in, in defense of most clubs, um, I don't think there's more than a couple hundred clubs that are really worth the attention that we so fanatically gave to Wingfoot. You know, mm-hmm. some places are, are treasures, but I think most architects go into places and they they generally improve them. You know. Yeah. I would say. You know, it's easy, it's easy to to pick out the guy who made the disastrous mistake, but I, you know, I think that generally speaking, there's I'm going to say 200, 300 clubs in the world where that are, that the greens are really worth saving in the way that we saved ours. You know, yeah. Um, so prediction time. What's what's the winning score this year? Uh, I'm not weaseling, but I will give you two answers. All right, I'll give um, you two. That's fine. <laughs> I'm not ready to give mine. Well, so. It goes like this. Uh, Mother nature first. If, if storms come and the fairways are soft, there's nothing anybody can do about that. Um, so that means there'll be that, that would be disaster case where, you know, they get to hit the fairway, uh, the ball plugs, they get to lift and clean. So at that point, and you know, they can hit every green with a nine iron wedge, you know, so you can't do anything about that. No course can. But that being said, any any sort of normal conditions, it's based on how the USGA sets up the greens, in my opinion. I know, I know the rough is going to be very, very difficult. Um, so they will have to hit the fairways. Even, even these guys will have to hit the fairways. But that being said, um, depending on where the pins are, uh, it's a two to three stroke difference per round based on pin position. And I do believe, based on what the USGA has been doing all year, um, I think they do intend to use many of the good spots. Nothing tricky whatsoever, but a lot of the recovered areas that do require creativity and, and deep thought about where you're just hitting the ball. If they use these recovered spots, they, you can't just hit the middle of the green. Imagine if you hit the middle of the green on two on one last and the pins in the left valley. You know, you, you got to you got to hit a great putt. <laughs> might might be gra- grabbing a different club. <laughs> exactly. And I got it. I'm, I'm very, very optimistic. The USGA has been fantastic. They have been paying very close attention to the course. Uh, I mean, the course itself. Uh, they've been studying the greens. They're not just coming in and saying, put pin position A, B, C, D, A. They're looking at the greens. They're putting the greens. And they're, they're learning the differences between uh, not, you know, if you move a pin five feet, six feet, seven feet, one way or the other in the same zone, it makes a huge difference. And they're learning that. And, and I got to applaud them for, for really putting the effort in. It's great to see. It's great to see. It's it's exciting. I, uh, I can't wait. And thank you so much for, uh, joining us and, and excited. I imagine you can't wait to, for everybody in the world to see, see the new greens. I can't wait. I'm just, you know, that's one of the things I'm really looking forward to is um, 
you make lemonade out of lemons, right? This year, uh, no spectators, no grandstands, a loss of excitement. Uh, but the ability to show, a, it's a hard thing to show on TV uh, an internet course with, without dramatic contours. You know, there's no ocean, there's no mountains. Uh, and that's made even harder when you have tents and grandstands all over. But this year we don't have that. And as your drone photo shows, you can really show off the land. And I'm pretty sure that the TV broadcast is going to do a lot of that. They're going to show you how beautiful a place one for it is. And, you know, there won't be grandstands blocking you. Yeah. You know, out of sight. I'm, I'm a big no fan. I think golf better without fans. Um, I think it's a better TV product and that's the way millions of people digest it. So I know obviously there's um, some history and some, the, you know, moments that aren't the same down the stretch, but overall golf product, I think is so much better, especially championship golf where, you know, if you miss a fairway big, you don't get the benefit of trampled down rough. That's a fact. And, you know, we've had various pros come through and um, just like the members are losing balls because the rough is bad and so are the pros yeah won't be 10 minute 10 minute drops for uh vj and the by the concession stand and throw monty off uh, i saw that i'm i'm sorry uh I, what can you say <laughs> own it own it is what i say uh don't blame the other guy <laughs> it's... and don't blame the other guy by saying i'm not blaming the other guy <laughs> You know, I, that's too bad. I just wish I, I wish he hadn't done that. Yeah. Yeah. I think he probably wishes he could redo the whole 18th hole after the tee shot. You know, what distressed me about this recent article, I think you're alluding to was, um, so he missed his second shot. He's on the upslope and he said, I looked at my line and had no chance. Uh, I play that shot pretty much every time I play 18 West because I'm so bad at wearing it up you have every chance in the world from there. It's not a hard shot onto the green to 10 feet from the pin at his level. He should have had a, a four or a five from that spot. He, he, he three footed from three, 20 feet. You know. and to, to think about the mentality of thinking I had no chance when you're, when yeah, you're in yeah. the lead of the U S open on the last hole. And to think that way, it's just maybe you had yeah. no chance because of your mentality, right? I guess, and I, I, I don't like to even hear myself talking like this because he got there. I never got anywhere near that there. You know what I mean? So he he obviously has the mentality to be in that position in the first place. So what do I know? Yeah. How tough is it to put yourself in that spot in the first place? You know, it's not like he's got a bad mentality. It just kind of didn't work at the very end. It's sort of like a runner not quite making it to the finish line. But he has to have a great golf mind to even get that far in golf. You know? Yeah. So yeah, it's easy, it's easy for all of us to, to to say that the quarterback stinks, you know. But we all know the quarterback is better than anybody we ever knew. You know, like golfer, the great golfers, it's never their fault. That's part of the mentality. So, well, that's true. It's golf, as they say, is a Scottish word for who are you blame. <laughs> so, Neil, thanks so much. I uh, I appreciate the the time and uh, can't wait to see Wingfoot in a couple weeks. <laughs> 